Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is singer, songwriter, and member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame, Holly Knight. Holly's new book, I Am the Warrior, My Crazy Life Writing the Hits and Rocking the MTV 80s, details her incredibly colorful career, starting with piano lessons in New York City, running away from home as a teenager to discover rock and roll, and her return to become one of the most successful songwriters of the decade. Holly's songs like Love is a Battlefield, The Warrior, Obsession, Better Be Good to Me, Never, Invincible, and the best, have empowered women ever since, and have been recorded by iconic artists like Pat Benatar, Hart, Rod Stewart, Aerosmith, Kiss, and Tina Turner. The winner of 13 ASCAP Awards, Holly is still as passionate and driven about music as she was in her late teens. It's her ability to move from one genre to the next that has sustained her incredible 40-plus year career in music. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Very, very happy today to welcome our guest, the esteemed member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame and all-around hit songwriter of the soundtrack of your lives, Holly Knight. Hi, Holly. Hi, Pete. How are nice you? Nice to talk to you after all these years. I know. How are you? I'm great. I'm doing good. I'm in a happy point of my life. Absolutely. Awesome. Holly has written a great book that was released at the end of November 2022. It's called I Am the Warrior, My Crazy Life, Writing the Hits and Rocking the MTV 80s, published by Permuted Press. And it's a lot of fun for anyone who doesn't know the name Holly Knight. You know her songs. And let me just run off some of the songs that Holly has written from Pat Benatar's Love is a Battlefield to Tina Turner's The Best to The Warrior, Scandal featuring Patti Smythe to Obsession and Emotion. So many of these songs were the soundtrack of the MTV 80s, as you say in the title. It's funny because as I was reading the book, there's a lot of sex, drugs and rock and roll in this book, probably more than I was necessarily expecting going into it. For this podcast, where we focus on the history of contemporary music, as told by the people who helped create it, I would love to focus on the rock and roll side of it and leave the sex and the drugs for the people to discover on their own as they read the book. The book will put a big smile on your face, and it's really, you feel like you're right there with Holly as she's living through this decadent decade of the 80s musically fashion. You know, there's some great pictures in there with your hair almost as big as Tina Turner's backstage at one of her shows when she was helping you get ready for some photos. But before we get into all that, let's talk about your life from the beginning, because music played a big part of your life 
early on and tell everybody about, you know, your grandparents were surgeons. They came over from Europe. Your parents, you had a better relationship with your dad than with your mom, but the common ground that you had with your mom was music. You know, yeah, I discuss it. I kind of give the background, which really kind of helps people to understand how I became who I was, you know, and the kind of songs that I write. And yeah, I grew up in New York City. I studied piano for four years. Sorry, 10 years. I was four. Got the numbers mixed up. <laughs> I was four and I studied piano for 10 years and I was pretty serious. I mean, I was taking classical music and I just loved it. Music was my first language and still is. And then I discovered rock music. And along the way, there were all kinds of different music genres that I was exposed to because my mother would take me to like Ravi Shankar concerts or we would listen to all kinds of ethnic music. If she went to a Greek restaurant, she would come home with a record that she bought at the cash register. And I just loved everything. I loved Broadway and theater. And I went to Philharmonic Hall and I would see concerts. And I still do to this day. I mean, because I do rock and roll for a living, I usually listen to something like French cafe music when I'm not working, because the last thing I want to do is listen to more of it. <laughs> but, you know, once I discovered rock music and the louder, the better, that was it for me. That was like, hello, soulmate music, you know, and she hated that. So that's where it, we kind of went in different directions. The one common ground that we had was music, but there was also some darkness that I talk about, which was some involved my relationship with my mother, which was somewhat abusive and not somewhat, it was abusive, but I didn't really want to make too much of that because it seems like every talented, creative woman I know seemed to have a mother that was abusive. So I almost referred to it in the book as well, that's strange, but maybe that's a rite of passage. And I do believe that you need adversity to rise above that. I mean, if everything's always like just perfect and there's a nice pretty ribbon on everything, you're fine. It's like eating ice cream. This feels good. But it's the adversity that's your greatest teacher. And for me, the adversity was to have my own voice and to fight back. And the reason that I felt this was important in the book was because as I got older and I became a songwriter, a lot of my songs, which I didn't realize until an interviewer pointed this out to me, are about fighting. And I realized that the difference is it's not about fighting with someone as much as fighting for things. So a lot of my songs have that sort of theme without even it being something that I was conscious of. You know, it had to be pointed out to me when this interview said, you know, your songs are all about fighting. Like, what's up with that? And I thought, no, they're not. But then I went and looked and there was like, love is a battlefield and the warrior and better be good to me and invincible and just on and on and on. But they were more about empowerment and stuff, you know. A hundred percent. I was just going to say that. You know, empowerment as a woman in a male-dominated industry or a male-dominated society, you know, writing songs about empowerment are sometimes you take it as a listener and you're like, okay, this is about a woman in a male-dominated society really standing up for herself. But when you read the book, it's not necessarily standing up against men. It's a lot of where your early inspiration came from was empowering yourself based on the challenges you had as a child. With a woman, yeah. No, that's a really good point. Absolutely. It's not focused on, although I will say that in this point in my life, I 
tend to bond more with women. There's some sort of sympathetical thing going on where I bond more with women, which is funny because in the beginning, I had such a lack of that growing up, you know. Right. And as a result, I left very young. I left home. I mean, I came from a good family. My father was an anesthesiologist. And as you said, my grandparents were surgeons. They were eye surgeons. And they came over to America you know, German Jewish. And my grandmother was one of my greatest inspirations. And in the day that she became a doctor, I mean, you could be maybe a nurse or a school teacher, but a doctor, let alone a surgeon, and you had to be pretty fierce to to stand out and do that. And I saw a picture of her in her graduating class from medical school. She was like one woman sitting amongst 40 men right. and not a lot changed because when I was inducted into the songwriting hall of fame, there's a picture of me with my it was kind of like a high school reunion. The people, a lot of them were people I had had written hits for or with. I was the only woman. I was the only woman and everybody else. It was all men in tuxedos. And so I thought, well, still there are those challenges even in you know today's world. A hundred percent. You mentioned in the book when you were inducted into the song hall in 2013, at that point, there were 400 men inducted and only 16 women were inducted. And most of those 16 were singer-songwriters like Joni Mitchell. That's a direct quote from the book. Of the few that were just songwriters, I, Holly, was the only woman who had written rock songs for and with rock bands and solo artists, including two of your co-inductees that night, Aerosmith and Lou Graham from Foreigner. But to go back to your grandmother, you know, when she became a surgeon, you're talking about the 1940s in Germany, right? I mean, this is, it was almost unheard of where she was paving the way for people like you later on to really break new ground in whatever it is you're doing professionally. But I love as a kid, it was your grandmother who took you to the piano showroom and mm -hmm. purchased your first grand piano. Yeah. And I still have it. I've had it since I was 11. So I've had it for many years and a lot of my hits have been written on it. Yeah, I talk about it in the book. She took me to this, she and my father, and they sat patiently while, while I played about 30 pianos. I played everyone in there. And at this point, everybody's staring at me and I didn't even care. I just, and then when I got to the very last piano, I thought, wow, hello, soulmate. That's what I wrote in the book. And, you know, you might wonder, well, what makes you decide this is the one? It's the one that makes you sound better than all the rest. You know, yeah, it's still sitting in my studio right here in my house. But what's so great about that so many years later, it's a reminder of your grandmother every time you sit down Absolutely. and play that piano. And, you know, my family kind of misunderstood her because she had a lot of anxieties about things. And the thing was, I, she and I were so simpatico and I thought, OK, it makes sense. She's weird. I'm weird. That makes sense that she's the one I connected with. I guess you would have to be somewhat weird to sort of have the balls to sort of just say, this is what I'm going to do. I don't care, you know, what it takes. When you were a teenager, you started rebelling a little bit, where being a teenager in Manhattan, you know, this is the late 60s, early 70s, you discover what you lovingly refer to as the freaks in Central Park, who introduce you to places like the Fillmore East and Max's Kansas City. But you're like 13 and 14 sneaking into these clubs. What was that like? I know. I mean, I'm a parent. I have two sons. And the thought that my kids would ever do that is just horrifying, you know. But somehow I would sneak out of the house. And I thought that my mother didn't really know, but she found out. And I remember she put a bag of shells on the door 
leaving the apartment. So if I were to leave, she would hear me. It was almost like a statement. You're busted. I know about you. Right. (laughs) But I did it anyway. And I would take the train. I mean, here I am 13 years old. I'm taking the subway at 11 o'clock at night by myself to go to the Fillmore. And then I would meet my friends down there and we would talk our way in for free and everything. And then once I entered, the first time I entered the Fillmore East, it was like another world just opened up, almost like Narnia, where you walk through the cupboard and all of a sudden there's <laughs> another world. And my mom would always wonder why I was so hoarse. And she kept telling me that I had to go to the doctor, not realizing that I was out at night screaming my head off and singing along to, you know, these great bands, whether it was Hendrix or, well, you can't really sing along to Hendrix, but you know <laughs> what I mean, Hendrix and, and Frank Zappa and the Allman Brothers and things like that. Yeah, that was pretty rebellious. <laughs> and then when you were 14, you got a job working at Sam Ash. So for those who don't know, Sam Ash is a legendary gear store that started here in Manhattan. What was that like? It was so exciting to me because it gave me one step closer to like the real thing, which was the music business. And, you know, you had rock stars walking in there all the time. Like if they were playing, say, a gig at the garden, they would come in that day or the day before and they'd want to get a new guitar or whatever. And these were people like Keith Richards or Frank Zappa. I mean, so many that I would just be like poker face fangirl, like, going, oh, my God, you know, that's Keith Emerson or whatever. And in the beginning, they gave me like all the jobs that they didn't want to do. I was the only girl that worked there. Not surprisingly, but like, for instance, if the manager wanted to sell an amp head as new, he would give me a Sharpie and tell me to fix all the little things and color it in and make it look new. Or one of the crappiest jobs was that he would send me in the back and I would have to take all the guitar wires and wrap them up nicely by the hundreds, you know, which is funny because to this day, like if a roadie sees me wrap up a cord, they're like, how do you do that? Like, you're really good at that because I'm like, you know. So that's pretty funny. But I loved I loved the fact that I made my own money. And that ethos has never left me. You know, money equals independence. And I loved making my own money. It was a, something that has stuck with me my whole life. Because with that, then you don't have anyone telling you what you can and can't do. It's your money. So right. you can. And I think that's important. I think it's great that there are households with two income earning people. And I think women should be working as much as men. Even if they're mothers, I think, I mean, I did it all, you know, but also I was going to say there was one day in Sam Ash when I was on my break and I was playing in the back. I was playing some electric keyboard and all of a sudden I heard this hand clapping and I turned around and it was heard the manager and he said, where'd you learn to play like that? And so I told him and he said, okay. And then he would start having me demonstrate the keyboards to people that would come in. Like I couldn't actually make the sale because I was too young. Didn't have a social security number or anything. But yeah, that was a little bit of showing other people what I could do. I mean, I was already doing a lot of recitals, but the rock world is completely different, as you know. And I think that's why a lot of musicians that are struggling, if they need to pay their bills, especially today, they work in music stores, whether it's the Guitar Center, Sam Ash is still around and, 
you know, there's a couple of legendary stores. Sam Ash was definitely one of them. But you know how I found it? Because in that day, it was on 48th Street. Like, you know how you have the diamond section right sure. next door? That sure. was Music Row. And it was a legendary. They had Manny's and they had Sam Ash and a bunch of others. And it almost sounded like a rock and roll version of an orchestra tuning up. You would hear so many. It was like a car jam where you could hear so many different drums playing at once, none of them playing with each other. So it just, but I loved that sound. And I thought, what is this place? You know, and it became like a magical place for me. So when I got hired, which I think I only got hired because something happened and they had to fire someone at the last minute. And I had just walked in. I mean, it was kismet. It was like the timing and everything. So I loved it. It's funny. One of our recent guests on this program was Skunk Baxter, and he has a similar story. He worked at Manny's. And it's just so funny, the through line with a lot of people who ended up doing legendary things in music started at these stores wrapping cable and demonstrating mm -hmm. keyboards and guitars. It's, it's fascinating. But you write in the book that you saw a flyer for a program in Boston on electronic music. Tell us what happened when you left New York for Boston. Well, that was my way out. I had already met someone that I was smitten with. I mean, I was only 15 and he was 20 and he was a drummer. And, you know, my situation at home was getting more and more violent and I just wanted out of there. So I was trying to think like, how, how do I leave home? I mean, how do I do this? And I saw this brochure. Now, keep in mind, I was really interested in that whole new, it was new, that genre of electronic music and, you know, having it incorporated into pop music, bands like Emerson, Lake and Palmer. I was like a total Emerson, Lake and Palmer geek. And I had already seen them a bunch of times and, you know, I just loved everything about Keith Emerson with his thigh high boots and he was British and I was already ever since seeing the early James Bond movies, the British accent was something that could just melt me in two seconds <laughs> to this day. And I sort of envisioned myself as a female Keith Emerson. But the reality was, you know, you had to learn to play these things. So I saw this brochure and they had all these, they had like ARP 2600s and they had the big Moogs, like the Moog 55s and 35s where they weren't like the mini Moogs that were much more accessible. They were the kind where you had to plug in cables and stuff. And I was just, you know, Tangerine Dream. There were so many and craft work. I really wanted to know about that. And then there was also Wendy Carlos, who at the time was Walter Carlos. He did Switched on Bach. I was fascinated with that. So yes, they had a few synthesizers in the store, but I wasn't allowed to touch them. They were very special. They were very unique at the time. This place, on the other hand, Bob Moog was coming to speak and there were like 20 synthesizers and everybody would get a chance to play one. So I went to my parents and I talked them into letting me go up there with no intention of returning home. So I went up there with this drummer, and by the time I was supposed to be going home, I was halfway across the country in a Ford Econoline. And, you know, I floated around after that for about three and a half years, always wanting to be in a band, but it never sort of materialized. It was always like the drummer and me, which is sort of like, I guess, a <laughs> keyboard version of the White Stripes, which at that time wasn't, wasn't something that was ever going to happen. And then I realized I was much more ambitious than him and ended up back in New York. And that's really when my career 
started. And when I say that, I mean, I had to, what they call it networking now, but for me, it wasn't called that, but that's what I was doing. And I was going to clubs. I was sneaking backstage to as many concerts as I can, meeting people and just hoping that the right situation would come along where I could be in a band. Because really what I wanted was to be a rock star. The thought of being a songwriter hadn't really come into it yet. Right. You know? Right. I mean, what's yeah. fascinating about kind of finding yourself as you traveled the country is you were a teenager. You were 16, you were 17 years old. There's a great anecdote in the book that when you were 18 and you were living in Seattle, you went to a Beach Boys show and you got Mike Love's attention and you went on stage and started jamming with the Beach Boys in front of an arena full of people. Yeah. And it wasn't even premeditated. I just... You know, I was so excited by the music and I went up to the front of the stage and I started miming a keyboard, never, ever thinking that he would notice me or whatever. But I think it was probably high or something at the time, too. So that probably gave me the courage to do. But he actually saw me and pulled me up on stage. And I remember there were people in the audience that were pushing me up there too, like, go for it, go for it. And then he walked me over to a keyboard. Of all songs they could have played, they picked the best Good Vibrations. The best and keyboard I remember, song, yeah. Yeah, and I remember him yelling the chords to me and I just looked at him like really sassy and said, I know the chords. <laughs> and then I looked out in the audience and I went, holy shit, this is like, this is a different view. I said that in the book. It's a different view from on stage than in the audience. Right. It was your first taste of that, right? So and when I you, yeah, when you got back to New York, now it's 1977, you're still 20, 21 years old. Talk about you just mentioned networking. Talk about some of the people that you met when you returned home in 77 and how that led to you forming your first band. Right. There were people I met that I kind of was more like a voyeur. Like I would see people like Robert Plant. There was a club called Tracks, and it was literally a couple of blocks from where I lived on the west side. It was on 72nd and I lived on 70th. Did you ever go to that club? Do you yeah, that club? yeah, towards the very yeah. end of Trax's existence, yes. Right, right. So every time a band would play at like the garden or something, they would go there afterwards. That was like the second place that they would go. And so I started going there and I met lots of people. And one of them who had been in the Rolling Thunder Review, he was this guy that prided himself in being a connector. His name was Howie. I wrote it in the book, but now my, my brain is just emptied out which happens when you get older. Um, anyway, he invited me to a gig and it was a band that Rob Stoner, who was the bass player in the Rolling Thunder Review had put together called Topaz. And they had a few members that were just filling in until they found someone more permanent because the members wanted to form their own band. And I met them that night and it turned out to be Anton Figg, the drummer, and Keith Linton, who they were buddies. They grew up in South Africa together. And I don't know if you know who Anton is, but he's, you know, he's a pretty famous drummer now. Well, these days. super uh, famous for playing yeah. in the house band at David Letterman with Paul Schaefer. Right, yeah. exactly. And on a lot of records. And it's interesting because he became friends after being hired to play drums on Ace Frehley's record. This all came about because, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me go back. We met each other and we exchanged numbers. And I was just very interested in the fact that they wanted to form a band. They had it all planned out. They were going to write original music. They were going to get a record deal. They were going to tour the world and become big 
and famous and that worked for me. <laughs> and I like, they had these interesting accents. And before I left, I, I said like, where are you from? They said, it's South Africa. And Keith was married to a South African girl. So she had come over with him and they had a child together, but she ended up, she was the lead singer in Spider. That was Amanda Blue. And the next day they called me, he called me around 11 at night. And it was like one of those rare nights where I actually take it a bath and I was in bed and I was ready to go to sleep. And the phone rings and he says, you know, I talked to Amanda and Anton and we would love for you to come down to our loft. We, they had a loft in Tribeca and play some of our ideas. I said, yo, that would be awesome. Uh, what were you thinking? Like, what day would you like to do this? He said, right now. <laughs> so I had this voice inside me going, get your ass up. This is it. I just knew that there was something different about this. Said, get up. And he came and picked me up and we went down to the loft and we were up all night. They played me some stuff and I noticed they had a big room in the back with keyboards. I said, can we jam? So we did. Then it was too late to go home. So I was trying to figure out what to do. And Amanda volunteered and just spoke up and said, oh, you can stay. Anton has a room. You can stay in the room with him without asking him or me or anything. And I looked at him and I went, okay. <laughs> so I ended up spending the night and he ended up being my boyfriend for like two and a half years while I joined the band. I walked in the next day into the kitchen. They said, we want you to join the band. So that's really what started my professional career. And we did everything. Everything was do it yourself. And Anton and Keith would take the meetings. And as far as writing, Everybody was writing, and I thought some of the songs they were writing were, were okay, but they weren't going to get us on the radio, so I thought, I'll give it a try. I kind of stumbled into songwriting that way because as I was doing it, it became more apparent that I was actually pretty good at it. So that started that ball rolling. But also, we were trying to think of a producer, and they had become friends with Eddie Kramer, who was another South African. So they had this whole expatriate thing going. You know, I write about all this in the book. It, it was a really fun time. It's one of my favorite chapters, the whole thing with them. And then Kiss. Kiss became a part of that history because at the time, Eddie Kramer was producing Ace Frehley's solo record. I don't know for Kiss fans if you remember this, but they each had their own solo record with the same artwork and stuff. And Keith gave a song to Eddie and said, can you play this to Ace? I'd like to see if you'd like to record it. So Ace heard the song and wasn't really that mad about the song, but he was mad about the drummer because I want that drummer. Do you think he'd play on my record? So Anton played on his record and then they became drinking buddies and friends. And because I was also, his girlfriend, besides being in the same band with him, I got invited to all these shenanigans that they got up to. But then what happened was Kiss heard Anton's playing and they were like, well, Peter, Chris isn't really, you know, he's a mess right now. So we should get Anton. So Anton played on Dynasty, the entire record, without getting credit, because they said they told him he wasn't going to get credit because they wanted everybody to believe that the band was infallible and, you know, everything was fine. An image thing, you know. And he also played on Kiss Unmasked, which I ended up playing on. That's a whole nother story, as right. you remember in the chapter. Right. And then all the funny, charming things, of the, you know, how I met Gene Simmons and then how I met Paul. And You dated Paul Stanley. You, yeah. You had a moment with Gene Simmons. You had a moment with Ace. There, we, it's, we it's all there. We were going to talk about that. We were going to get it by the <laughs> but, but I don't. I don't really dish. It's more the idea that women can be empowered too. That women don't have to be victims, and women get to decide too, just as much 
whose ass they want to grab or right. if it's appropriate or not right. appropriate. Right. Yeah. It's all it's all about empowerment, like we talked about yeah, before. Exactly. Before Spider, which is your band with Anton and Keith and Amanda, was Spider, the original name was Siren. And Ace Freely did your logo, right? Yeah, which I put in the book, it, and it does. It looks really crude, and but the S in Siren looks just like the kiss S's, you know. That's really uh, funny. A lot of people complain look like the Nazi, you know, <laughs> the, the thing, which was ridiculous because Gene and Paul were Jews, you know. <laughs> well, so, furthering furthering the kiss connection, you got Bill a coin to become your manager, who was managing right. Kiss. And Bill does a clearance search on the name Siren. It doesn't clear, and you guys have to change your name. And as a David Bowie fan, Spiders from Mars, you suggest Spider. Right. Exactly. And so that became, we did a title search, and that became the name. And along with that, we were starting to think about stage names, too. And I didn't feel that my last name was... For whatever reasons, it didn't sound right to me. It didn't fit me, which is not to say that I wasn't proud of my family's name or heritage. I just wanted a stage name that was more memorable. People kept mispronouncing it. It was Erlanger, Holly Erlanger. And I just felt like that just that's not who I want to be known as. So I was trying to think of a name and I had a dream. And in the dream, I was Holly Knight. And it just I woke up and went, God, that just sounds so right. It's a very common name, as you know, in Britain. And it's like Smith over here, but I liked it. And I made the song and writer in me like the rhythm of the Holly Knight. Like I have two sons now and it's Tristan Knight and, and Dylan Knight, you know. So, but it just felt right. And it's just kind of interesting how, and I write about it in the book, how over the years it's taken on you know, sort of like I became the person I was supposed to be when right. I legally changed that name. Right. You know? Right. Well, you talk it's been my name for what forty over forty years. Right. And you legally changed it. Right. Mm -hmm. You talk about in the book how you at the time were doing research as to who was producing the bands that you were looking up to in the songs that you were hearing on the radio, looking for a producer for Spider. And that led you to tracking down Mike Chapman. And for a lot of people listening to this podcast, they may not know the name Mike Chapman, but for around 15 or 20 years, his production work is pretty much all you heard on pop radio. You know, going back to the stuff that he did in England before he moved to America, and then all the hits that he had in America, whether it was My Sharona into Blondie into like Hot Child in the City, like all of these songs that were the soundtrack of the late 70s in America, you thought that Mike would be the right producer for Spider. I was trying to convince the other band members that he was the guy because in addition to being a brilliant producer, he was a brilliant songwriter. And so I thought that was an extra tool that he had in his box that a lot of other producers were great engineers, but they couldn't bring any arrangement skills or songwriting to the table. And I felt that that was important. If you were going to get the only way to get well known was to get songs on the radio 
And in order to do that, you had to have singles and then everybody else would get a free ride by putting the other songs on the record. So I was aggressively looking for him. We didn't have the internet back then, so it wasn't that easy. It wasn't like you can just type in someone's name and boom, there they are. And at the time, Bill was like, he was a little preoccupied with Kiss. They were the big breadwinner. So anytime they snapped their fingers, he had to go in that direction. So, and I think he thought maybe it was a little premature. We didn't have the deal yet, but so I was left to my own device. And as serendipitous as it sounds, I actually met him at a party at Trax. I had just met the Knack and I was talking to them and this guy comes over with this Australian accent and they introduced him as Mike. They didn't say anything else. They said, oh, this is this is Mike. And I said hi. And we talked for a little bit. And then he went off to excuse himself to get a drink. And Prescott, the bass player from the Knack, said he produced our record. And I immediately thought, like, oh, my God is that Mike Chapman? And they said, yeah. And so then I had to go find Anton and I had to beat the cassette. We had just done all these demos to get a record deal and he didn't want to give it to me. He said, no, it's my only copy. And I said, you're giving me that tape. I had almost beat it out of him. So he gives me the tape. He's like, Jesus, relax here. Here's the tape. I wrote about that. (laughs) And I kissed him on the cheek and ran away and found Mike. And I proceeded to make this big speech about you know, who we were and that Bill Coin managed us and we just done demos and we were looking for a producer and a record deal. And then I finally just got up the courage and said, we have a tape, would you listen to it? And he said, of course, I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my God. So he put it in his pocket. And I remember this, he patted it. He said, I'll listen to it. He said, but I have to tell you, I'm really, really busy and I'm really terrible at getting back to people. So you might have to just keep calling me. And if you do, it's fine. Just keep reminding me till I listen to it. That is like a typical thing that Mike would say, you know? So I was like, okay. And boy, did I, I called him like every day I was relentless. And it was like, he told me to. So, and then I could hear him in the background every time he would never take the call. He was too busy. I remember I heard Debbie Harry in the background going, who's Holly Knight? She keeps calling you, you know, and um, <laughs> she thought maybe I was his girlfriend or something. And, and and then another time I heard him going, oh, shit, it's that Holly Knight chick again. I told her, you know, I told her I would call her back. I haven't called her. So this went on for about two weeks. And then he finally called me. And then my heart sunk because he said, I'm leaving town tonight. I thought, that's it. He's not going to. And he said, but I'm going to be on a plane for six hours and I'll listen to your tape. It's just like, I can't go anywhere. I'm a captive victim. I'm going to listen to your tape and I'll call you in a few weeks. Okay. And I was like, oh my God, it's actually happening. Right. So eight hours later, he called me the minute he got off the plane and got home. And he said, I absolutely love your tape. I love the band, love the songs. And I want to sign you to my new record label. So that's what happened. That's That's how it started. So, you know, up until that point, I kind of referred to that part of the book as the film noir, because New York is very, you know, grungy, dirty, black and white, artsy, cool, edgy. Right. And then all of a sudden we go over to California and it's like, I look at that as Fuji color. Right. And madness and just the the whole music business and the whole fast pace. So there's a tone shift in the book, you know. Right. And that's where the next part of your career really takes off from. Because you are expecting to go in the studio with Mike, but you just said he's too busy. So he hires his friend Peter Coleman to produce the Spider album. You're a little disappointed, but you are signed to Mike's label, Dreamland. 
where, you know, he's still the hottest guy in the business. And so you're still in the orbit and he's coming by the studio and Peter's making the record producing Spider. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. Bill decided to, he planted this seed, which of course everybody was excited about doing except for me, because what would happen is we would write the songs for the record more than we needed. And we would turn them in without saying who wrote what. So that when the label picked the songs, they were unbiased as to who wrote what. It was just, this song's a hit, this song we're not doing, you know, things like that. And as it turned out, they picked all my songs every time on both records for the singles. So that also, the validation of that is when I realized, yeah, I'm actually pretty good at this. And I loved doing it too. That was the other thing. I just, I actually loved songwriting. I didn't know I would love it as much as I did. But in the meantime, Bill, who had done this allegedly, I've never talked to the guys about it, but he said that the band members of Kiss split everything equally as far as the songs. Now, I don't know if that's true, but so I'm not really sort of pointing, you know, the attention at them of what they did. It was more about the fact that he wanted us to share all the publishing and songwriting equally. And I wasn't crazy about that idea, but I was kind of, you know, muscled into agreeing to it because I stupidly thought that if I didn't, they would kick me out of the band. So I agreed to it. And I thought that would, you know, things were starting to get a little, we were arguing about a lot of things. It was mostly me and Amanda. You know, I write about it and I'm pretty honest about it in the book. But I think there was a lot of jealousy because I was the songwriter, you know, and they were trying to, they wanted as much attention and they wanted equal, you know, tunes being picked and all this stuff. And it really created a lot of problems in the band. So that by the time we got to the second record, things were kind of getting off the rails. And that's when I decided to leave the band. And I I went to Mike and I said, look, you know, you put a lot of money into the band, but I'm really thinking about leaving. And I thought I should tell you, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. And, and I thought he was going to be pissed. And he said, no, what you should do is you should leave the band and you should move to California and I'll sign you to a new publishing deal. And oh, there's one part I left out um, on the second record. I felt that we didn't quite have the single that was going to really push us into the stratosphere. I mean, the first record, we did have a top 40, which was New Romance, which is still to my day one of my favorite songs that I wrote. Ooh, it's a mystery. I've got to tell you that when New Romance came out, I had just discovered Billboard magazine and the top 40 and the charts, and I owned that single somewhere. Oh, my I could, God. Oh, You're absolutely. Kidding. I was like, you know, I could sing that to you like note by note. You know, that was, wow. um, yeah, 100%. But the story that you were going to tell is a bunch of the Spider songs ended up getting covered by other artists later on. But talk mm -hmm. about how you and Mike wrote Better Be Good to Me for Spider. Well, I went to him. I knew that we still needed like something better than what we had. And I asked him if he would be willing to write a song with me for the record. And I thought that if I got him to write it with me, maybe, just maybe, I could even get him to produce it. And then that would be the beginning of something really great. 
So he was totally up for it. And I went over and we wrote the song in one day. And it was just amazing to me the the chemistry that we had writing together. I'd never written with someone like that before. And we were so simpatico with the way that we connected, you know. Anyway, I love the song. I brought in this song. The title was Be Good to Me. And he said, why don't, since it's a woman singing, why don't we make it a little tougher, like, better be good to me. If you're not good to me, you know, I'm not going to. And it had lines like, oh, yes, I'm touched by your show of emotion. Should I be fractured by this lack of devotion? And then you better be good to me. That's how it's got to be. And I don't have the time for your overloaded lines. It was just very empowering, you know. Oh, yes, I'm touched by the show of emotion. Should I be fractured by your lack of emotion? Should I? Should I? Oh, you better be good to me. That's how it's gotta be now. Cause I don't have no use for what you lipstick all the truth. Oh, you better be good to me. It had lots of attitude. The song was only two chords, by the way. But because it changes so much, you're never aware of it. And the star of that song is the lyrics and the attitude behind it. And I kind of was thinking of like a Lou Reed approach to it, like Walk on the Wild Side, you know? Well, there's a postscript in your book where you talk about the dozen or so songs that you wish you had written and Walk on the Wild Side, I think, might be the first song on the list. Absolutely. And that also you mentioned that also has two chords. So there's something about just, you know, keeping it simple quarterly. Obsession is just two chords also. Well, I have an obsession story. When I was in high school, there was a radio station out in Long Island called WLIR, which was like the big new wave station in the early 80s. And they had this thing called the Screamer of the Week. And every week they would have all the new songs compete to become the Screamer of the Week. And the Michael DeBar, Holly Knight version of Obsession was Screamer of the Week. And that became another favorite song of mine that I owned. You know, I much prefer it to the Animotion cover just because the way that he speaks those verses, that's a hook. You are an obsession. I cannot sleep. I am a possession. I'm open at your feet. There is no balance, no equality. Be still. I will not accept defeat. I will have you. Yes, I will have you. I will find a way. And I will have you. Like a butterfly. A wild butterfly. I will collect you and capture you. Michael's an actor, so, you know, he, he could pull that off. Whereas they tried to translate it into this sort of monotone melody, which, I mean, obviously it worked. I mean, it, worked it worked, but I, I prefer, but, you know, I went to listen to it to prep for today and it's not on Spotify, so I had to find it on YouTube. But, you know, the... Oh, is it on YouTube? I, I didn't know it's, it's, it's on YouTube, but it's not on Spotify. Your version I need with, to, with Michael. I have a Spotify playlist, so I need to put that version on there for sure. And I also have an Apple playlist and a YouTube channel, music channel. I need to put it on all It's that. funny how, you know, everything is connected because the version of Obsession that you and Michael did was pitched by, I guess it was somebody in Mike's company, right, to the movie A Night in Heaven. And Correct. 
our most recent interview was with Brian Adams, who wrote the song Heaven for that movie, A Night in Heaven. So everything is always I know, especially. Yeah, especially with me. It's like it doesn't take much. There's going to be some thread somewhere. Um, totally. With totally. the music at least, you know. Back to Better Be Good to Me, you know, you come So he in, offered, he offered to produce it. I didn't even ask him. He said, right. I should produce this. Which, which, okay. is, which is great for you, but maybe not so great for the egos of the other band members. Like, what the hell are you doing co-writing a song without us with Mike Chapman? Right. They were really pissed about it. And instead of, I mean, I knew they would be, but I figured if once they heard the song and once Mike produced it, that they would change their tune, which most of them did, except for Amanda. And had we gone on to make another record, had I stayed in the band, I suspect, and I've had many conversations about this with Anton and Keith, who I'm still, you know, really good friends with, that would have been our direction. It was a much cooler direction. Right. You know, it wasn't quite so much progressive rock and all these, even like some of the songs they wrote, the lyrics, I didn't even understand what they were about you know <laughs> um, and I don't even know if they did but mine were always more straight ahead they were just sort of simple and straight ahead pop tunes so at that point that's where I had started talking before I went to Mike and I talked to him another thing I want to say about better be good to me which was like one of those sort of hardcore lessons that get thrown in your face when you're young but uh, one day I walked into Dreamland Records and Mike handed me a lyric sheet and on the lyric sheet, Nikki Chin, his partner's name was on the lyric sheet. And I thought, well, that's weird. And I asked him what that was about. I didn't actually realize it was going to go out into the world like that or on the record. And I said, why is his name on it? You know, like he wasn't even in the country when we wrote it or recorded it. And he said, I know, I know. He said, it's fucked up. He said, I've had a partnership, Chinny Chap, with him for many years. And this has been going on for many years He's more of the business guy and I write the songs. He said, just agree to it and it'll never happen again. And I said, why is that? He said, because I'm breaking up my partnership with him and I'm dissolving the label. So after he'd gone through all this stuff to build the record company and everything, we were both in a place where we needed to move on. And right. he said, listen, here's what I think you should do. I think you're an amazing musician and I think there's a value to that. But I think as a songwriter, you're even better. And wow. I believe that, you know, someone that can write a hit song, not once, but over and over again, I think that you're one of those people and I will nurture you. You know, I'll come out, we'll write together. He didn't use the word nurture. That's a girl's term, but that's basically, <laughs> that's basically what he was saying. We'll write together. I'll introduce you to other writers. I'll sign you to a new publishing deal. If I'm doing a record and they haven't come up with the hit song, which of course we'll look at that first, but if they need a hit song, I'll hook you up with them, which awesome. that all those things happened. And then the first song that you and Mike wrote post spider was love is a battlefield. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? So, and that was written to order for Pat Benatar. She needed a single. Yeah. There's a really great chapter in there about how that song got written where we wrote the song, like pretty much the first day, except for one line. And then it took us a week to come up with that last line, which was in the chorus, so it had to be really good.
you know, as a songwriter, you know when a line belongs there. And it almost sounds like it's so classic and so good. You think, has this been done before? But it hadn't been done, you know. But during that week, I really got to know him. And, like, you know, he was my mentor. I was like this young protege. And I just was like sort of doe-eyed. And like whatever he said was, it was like the gospel, you know. And I love the fact that he believed in me. I mean, everybody was starting to wonder, like, who's this new writing partner, this girl that Mike's working with, because everybody wanted to work with him. So just having him endorse me in that way was really, really very special. And as the years went on, I started writing with more people. I didn't, I went to EMI publishing, which he was quite upset about, but you know, you grow up, the protege grows up and it's like one of those classic stories. You can never, even though you are equal as far as your talent or what you do and you've been established, you're equal. The mentor never can see it that way, you know? Right. And I'm sure that- A little bit under his thumb and after a while it got annoying, you know? Right. And I'm sure that, you know, in any relationship, there are ups and downs and highs and lows. But you talk about you going to opening night of the Tina Turner musical, you know, just a few years ago. And Mike was there. And I'm sure that for all of the rockiness in the relationship, there's still this, you know, this bond that will never go away based on the songs you created together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's funny because it started out exactly the way it it sort of ended as far as his personality. Like he said to me, look, I'm an asshole about calling people back. And he still is, you know, but I've learned that it's not about me. I've learned not to personalize it. And we do. We have a very strong bond. We know who we are. He's finally been able to say to me that I did as much for his career as he did for mine. That's awesome. And we love writing together. I mean, and we, I'm sure we're going to write together again. That's awesome. We don't die first. <laughs> you talk in the book about the relationships that you built over the years with some really, really special artists. Tina Turner probably being at the top of the mountain because she recorded nine of your songs. You know, Better Be Good to Me was a spider song that she covered. The best, or simply the best, which, you know, a lot of people refer to that song, you know, by that title, was written by you and Mike, but not for Tina Turner, written for a singer that some people may remember, speaking of English singers named Paul Young. And you have a very funny passage in the book where you are smitten with him. You write this song with Mike for him, and then he ends up passing. And Bonnie Tyler cuts it, which, you know, whatever, but eventually it gets, Tina says, I love this song. Can you write me a bridge and then change the key? You're simply the best. And the funny thing, if you get all the way to the end of Holly's book. I know you're going with this. (laughs) And you see the thank yous. One of the thank yous is to Paul Young for not recording the best. 
Yeah. Well, I start that chapter, you know, that was sort of like this. Let me just say this book is centric around the MTV decade. So the afterword kind of addresses what happened to me after that. But it's really my love letter to the 80s and all that encompass that. And the biggest tune that I've written in my career to date uh, was written at the end of that time. And that was around the same time, too, that MTV started going south, you know, We were doing less and less music. The M didn't stand for music anymore. So it really is centric on that. But, you know, I start that. So that's the last chapter. And Kathy Valentine is in that chapter, too. I mean, it's just a pretty charming story, actually, and funny. It's funny. There's a very funny story, speaking of Kathy Valentine, of you and Kathy and Kathy's mother attempting to go skiing, not realizing that there was no snow and you're in your snowsuits and you get out ready to hit the slopes and everyone's laughing. Yeah, yeah, that's one of my favorites. A few people said that's their their favorite story, actually. <laughs> I, I did an interview with Bob Lefsitz the other day, and he said that was his favorite. Well, the one with Anne and Nancy Wilson in bed where you're looking at your 30 toes is pretty memorable as well. Yeah, that's also a popular one, and, and it's all true. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I started that chapter by saying the best was not written for Tina Turner, but it was meant for her. Right. So, you know, I tell the whole journey of that in in this chapter. And she actually, by the way, she wrote the foreword to my book, which, you know, I was so honored that she said I could use what she had written as the foreword because it started out as a blurb. I asked her if she would write a blurb like everybody else. Right. And she wrote this long paragraph and it was you know, I burst out crying when I read it because, you know, a lot of times nobody says thank you to the songwriter or they right. don't want people to know that the songwriter wrote the song. And most people, anytime they hear a song, they assume that the writer wrote it. I mean, hell, you know, when I was growing up, I thought that Elvis wrote his own song. Right. So I understand right. that, you know, but she really sort of she just laid it out there beautifully. And then I said, this is incredible. You Can I use it as the forward? And she said, go for it. You know? Amazing. One of the things, you know, that I wanted to reiterate for anyone who hasn't read the book yet is that it really is a love letter to the decade of the 80s, because when Spider is starting out, the first record comes out right, you know, in the beginning of the decade. And so as I'm reading it, it's almost with all this music surrounding the story, it's almost like the 80s, the musical in my mind. And when you get to the final chapter and the best is the song that closes out the 80s, it literally peaked in the fall of 89, you know, on the charts, that it's almost like if this is the 80s, the musical, that's the final song in act two of the 80s, the musical. And then I remembered, wait, it already was the final act in Tina, the musical. So, you know, it's really one of these special, special songs that can be that final curtain call, whether it's to your book or to Tina's show. You know, it's a song that is going to outlive everyone and be around forever. You know, it's funny because here it is 35, 40 years later, you know, 80s music is just booming right now so it's actually this song which when it first came out i mean we thought it was a really good song but we can say this is a hit and it's going to do this and blah, blah, blah. we just wrote a really honest song and who knew that it was going to be as big as it i mean we hit some sort of nerve in like pop culture where this song gets licensed more now than ever i mean i get so many for quite a few of my songs i'm getting the most amazing licensing these songs have a life of their own 
Speaking of the best, I was just going to say, I was watching the Super Bowl and and I heard, you know, I heard the best. I thought of you um, yeah. a couple a couple of years ago on Schitt's Creek. Everyone was, you know, a whole new generation. My kids were like, I love this song, Simply the Best. I'm like, oh, if you only Oh, that's knew. amazing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, that's great to hear. Yeah, it became also the wedding thing for the LBGT community after they aired it three times on that show. Wow, and then amazing. the Warriors on Glow. Glow, yeah, that's about women's wrestling, sure. And the Warrior, the Warriors in 80 for Brady and is also coming out in Cocaine Bear, which I wow. can't wait to see that movie. Yeah, that looks crazy. Um, Some of the other songs, since we're running a little tight on time, that we haven't talked about yet. You know, the book is called I Am the Warrior. Do you want to spend a couple of moments talking about, you know, Patty Smythe and Scandal and how The Warrior, you co-wrote it with Nick Gilder, Mike produced pictures. it, and it was a big uh, hit for Patty Smythe and Scandal. still friends and when my book came out we did a gig here in LA at the bourbon room and then we did another one at the cutting room in New York actually it was my gig but in New York she came and she sung the warrior which is oh, really that's awesome nice. yeah you know it's good to be friends with all these people after so many years and we're all getting older and we've all had kids and we all had lives you know well think about all of the iconic female artists who have recorded your songs Patti Smythe being one of them we talked about Tina. We talked about Pat Benatar. Your highest charting song, the most monetized song is probably the best, but your highest charting song in America was never by heart. So talk about Ann Wilson and Nancy Wilson and your friendship with them. Well, you know, I write about it in the book. It was called The Night of the Thirty Toes or whatever. And, you know, we were simpatico. We were part of a very small pool of women that were rockers and successful doing it. I mean, if you think about it, there were only a few. And we just hit it off from the day that we met. As time went on, I think I got closer to Nancy because... Most lead singers that I've met, they're all pretty, you know, it's interesting. They're, I don't want to say they're divas, but they're like, they've got a moat around them. And every now and then the gate comes up and you can get inside and sort of just be normal with them. And other times the gate comes down, you know. So my friendship with Nancy, she was we horsed around a lot. I mean, we would meet in different cities. It wasn't just that record that I worked on. It was three records after that, you know, that I gave them songs or I co-wrote There's the Girl with Nancy. You know, even again, a six degrees of separation. And it's like she was married to Cameron Crowe and he became really famous as a director and a screenwriter. But back then he was just the struggling guy, you know, 
struggling screenwriter. And it was just so nice to see him explode and become famous. I talk about that with Billy Idol, actually, in the book, too, because when I first met Billy, he'd come over to America and he was looking to do a solo career. And he ended up getting Bill Coin as a manager and he didn't really know people in town. And I took him around and showed him around. And then he was looking for a guitarist. And I had told Bill Coin about Steve Stevens, who I'd seen in a band called The Fine Malibus. And what an amazing guitarist he was. So I'm even instrumental in, in, wow. in introducing them. And then I saw him years later and he had all of a sudden, you know, he'd been on the cover of Rolling Stone. Well, not all of a sudden. That's a ridiculous statement. I mean, through a lot of hard work and dedication, he had exploded, you know, and I had sort of made it as a songwriter. So it was really nice. Weren't you his date? Yeah. To the first MTV Music Awards, right? Yes. Yes. And it was a friendship. It wasn't like he was my romantic date, but it was just so badass. I was sitting in the front row while Madonna was, you know, <laughs> around the stage floor and exposing her. You could see right up her dress. Nice. And I thought I have arrived. You know, I was up for like an award. He was up for like three of them or something. It's fun. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of of other men and romances and music and rock and roll, Tell us a little bit about your relationship with Steven Tyler and how Ragdoll came about. Well, Ragdoll was a little bit different in as much as they had written. When I say they, it was him and Joe Perry. And I later learned that Jim Valance, when we were talking about Brian Adams, he was also a writer. And I didn't know that. I didn't know who was a writer, except that John Kolodner had called me up. And for those of you that don't know who John was, he was sort of a legendary A&R man. And he was the president of Geffen Records at the time and was a big fan of mine and called me up and said, I have this tune that I, I want to send you. And he said, uh, it's Aerosmith. And the minute he said Aerosmith, I'm like, I'm in. And it didn't matter. They were kind of over at that point. They had been doing so many drugs and gone down the rabbit hole that they weren't doing the, they weren't making great records at that time, you know, but they had cleaned up their act a lot. And he said, I like this song and I think it's, I think potentially it could be a hit, but in its present form, it's an album track. He said, I want you to listen to it and see if you want to work on it. And I, the first thing I said was, well, how do they feel about that? Because the last thing I want is to piss them off or be rude and walk in there and I'm going to come and change things. He said, oh, no, no, no. I've talked to Steven and he's fine with it. He understands that the song could be better. And he's just, you know, he's been working on it too long to know what to do with it. So Steven called me up. And for two weeks, they sent me the song. I listened to the song a lot. And I thought it was good, but I thought he was right. I didn't know what the hell the song was about because it was called Ragtime. And, you know, to be honest, a lot of songs that Stephen writes, you don't really understand. I wonder if he does what the lyrics mean. They just sound so great. You don't care. You know, <laughs> I call it like the Stephen Tyler lingo jargon you know he's just got this great rhythm i think after that maybe he's devoted a little bit more time to sort of being more literal with his lyrics although my favorite stuff that he's written is all the early stuff like dream on you know right um, yeah that's often the case you know even with heart my favorite stuff still is actually the early stuff they did like barracuda right um, 
Right. You yeah. mentioned Barracuda in the book, and you mentioned what was the Aerosmith song off the first album that you mentioned? Well, I and love the, rocks. I met right. or back in the saddle. I back think back in the saddle was the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah was for off sure. the rocks record. Yeah, I just saw. I mean, the guitar lines that Joe Perry writes are just so iconic, and that's the kind of rock music like I really love. You know, totally. Totally. Yeah. The one more song I want to mention before we wrap up. It wasn't a massive hit, but it definitely was on the radar of anyone who was following music in the 80s. And that was Pleasure and Pain that you wrote with Mike Chapman for Chrissy Amphlett and Divinals. There's an interesting story in the book about that, which it started out, I had written the song and I was going to write it with Chrissy Amphlett. She'd come to town. I was a huge fan of the Divinals. It's actually one of my favorite songs that I've written. If you were to ask me what my three favorite songs are, which you haven't, but I'm going to tell you anyway, <laughs> is that's one of them. Pleasure and Pain. Invincible is another one that Benatar did and probably changed that John Waite. Well, I have to say something about change, because before I read this book, I did not know that change was a spider cover. I didn't know that you had written it 100 percent. But what I did know is when I was that teenage kid in the early days of MTV, that video freaked me out where he took the mask off and he was, you know, the other guy. It's like watching it now. It's really silly. But back then it was definitely. They were all effective. silly. They were all silly. I mean, come on. If you look at the video to the warrior, I mean, as I said in the book, it looks like she got struck across the face with a lightning bolt the way the makeup was. And it's funny because I asked her when I got inducted in the songwriting hall of fame she came and sung the warrior and she inducted me so I said to her you know let me ask you something what did you think of that video were you happy with that video she, she's like fuck no I hated that video <laughs> <laughs> we laugh about it to the day, but that's just how the as iconic as it is now and it's so quintessentially 80s look at the video to love is a battlefield I right. mean Right. Yeah. Very much of a time and a place. But back to the uh, Chrissy Amphlett story. Do you want to tell everybody? Oh, right, right, right. So anyway, she was very eccentric. And we met in a hotel room. And then she just stood up and said, I'm going to go for a walk and left. And I knew she wasn't coming back. I didn't even know what that was about. So apparently she was mad at me because I asked her if she and the guitarist were an item. Which they were. Which they were, but they didn't want anyone to know. <laughs> I thought it was a normal question, but she, for whatever reason, thought it wasn't. So she went and told the label that she wasn't going to finish the tune with me. And I said, well, would you like us to finish the tune for you? And she was like, yeah. I went and finished it with Mike because I write a lot more on my own now, but I do actually like collaboration if it's with the right person. And I knew that I had quite a lot of the tune written already. And she said, Mike, come on, you want to finish the verses and stuff with me? And he said, sure. And he was producing them. So that's that was the logical sort of thing. Because I knew that if we wrote it and he wanted to produce it, it would come out amazing. And, you know, it was a big hit in like Australia and other places, but it didn't do what it should have done in the States. Well, it's, it's still a great song with such a great lyric and such a great concept. We're running out of time, but I wanted just to mention some of the other people that you collaborated with 
became friends with because, again, it really is a travelogue in a way through the decade of the 80s. You know, there are great stories with Rod Stewart, how you became such good friends with him that you went to his soccer games, Bon Jovi, Don Johnson. There's nobody more 80s than Don Johnson. There's actually a great picture in the book of a Rolling Stone magazine reader's poll where you are listed as one of their picks for best songwriter of the year. And Don Johnson is voted best newcomer and worst newcomer right. on the same year. And there's a big picture of him, like 50 pages before you write about him in the book. I but know, it's funny. It's you funny. talk about him, there's cheap trick stories, there's Hall and Oates stories, there's a crazy Ozzy Osbourne story, which I never even knew before I read the book. And I went down a rabbit hole trying to find that song, and it just does not exist out there. I'll send it to you. <laughs> but I asked him, you know, he actually cut it. It didn't end up on his record. And I wasn't sure, should I write about this? But, you know, I think it's important to write about the things that didn't happen, too. And I have a, I call it my boneyard. I have a collection of some of the best songs I've ever written still waiting to be cut. And I have a wish list of people that I want to work with. And I'm by far not done. I look at them as vintage Holly Knight. They're going to come out and be big hits at some point. And I feel like I'm writing better than ever. And are you still writing new stuff? Oh, yeah. I'll have to send you some songs. Aren't you like the president of like, <laughs> Atlantic? I have some, I have some hit it's songs like, for you. It's like Clark Kent and Superman. This is, you know, yeah. my, my day job is doing that. Absolutely. Could always use how more, wonderful. more hit songs. I think that's great. You know, as we get older, we need to reinvent ourselves and find other things. You can't all live and die by the cross of rock and roll or pop, you know, or you have different habits. As long as you're still inspired, you know, you're a creator, you're going to create, you know, you're one of the Very best, so. you're one of, no pun intended, the best of all time. I would love to close with a quote from your book where you talk about why your songs resonated with the world. You write, I think part of the fascination with me was that I was a woman who had not only infiltrated the male-centric landscape of rock and roll, but was writing empowering songs with attitude for female artists. And when you think about Pat Benatar and you think about Hart and you think about Tina Turner and you think about Patti Smythe, it's right there. You know, it's really your songs helped define a decade where women were really empowered by the songs that you gave them. So kudos to you. I'm super, super happy that we were able to talk to you and really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I just wanted to say, too, like a couple of weeks ago, I saw Kelly Clarkson do The Warrior on her show. Wow. That was just really came full circle. I was so excited that she did it. She sounded great. Yeah. And, and what's so great and timeless about that song is that lyric could have been written for Kelly Clarkson. Yeah, absolutely. And then you look at like that. I haven't seen the movie, but 80 for Brady, like all those women, you know, it's like amazing. And it wasn't like anything that was premeditated planned. Or I thought, I'm going to write just for women. I wrote, obviously, for men, too. But I liked thinking about, like, oh, if I write this for a guy, but a woman sings it, that's when it becomes empowering. Right. You know? Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the time. Thank you for the book. And thank you for the music. Holly Knight. Thank you for having me.
Thanks to Holly Knight for joining us this week. You can keep up with Holly at her website, hollyknight.com, where you can learn more about her new book as well as her personal recollections about all the great songs she's written. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbarg, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastino, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, Zach Kornhauser, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.